Someone's already made the comment, he wished he'd have worn clean socks tonight. In light of the title to the lesson, perhaps uh, we will have an interesting time for the next few moments giving some thought of reflection to these events of which Brother Eddie read just a moment ago from the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to John. We are thankful for Brother French being with us tonight, that congregation at Mountain View in Granger County that we support. We're always so delighted to hear of the good work that's going on there and the fact that the opportunity is so bountiful in terms of the harvest is so great there in terms of the opportunity, of course, to share the gospel. We do want to continue to pray for and to wish that that work flourishes and indeed grows and multiplies. This evening, as we come to this particular aspect of our worship, a study, a reflection on some part of the Word of God, I would like to ask us to begin by again noting that we have read through a fair amount of the book of God this year here at the Pippin Church. And as we come to this particular aspect here in the midst of the month of October, we are currently in the book of John. And as we read this fourth gospel account, we see so many differences compared to the first three gospel accounts. But nonetheless, the same Master, the same Savior, and the same Lord. But we find the presentation of His truth in such a touching way. This is the only gospel account that gives us the full details about the things we're about to study this evening. You may notice that some of these comments are certainly in order. Sometimes unexpected events can often bring such memories. Unexpected events can often thereafter, due I suppose to the unexpected character, result in those events being remembered so long and often with such a special character. It might well be that, interestingly enough, maybe those apostles reflected often on the events of this very evening that we're about to study tonight. You'll notice that last comment. This unexpected truth, this teaching that the Lord set before them, He did so not just by word of mouth, but He did so in the events, of course, that we're about to study. Let's turn the slide to the next one and begin to look with some care and some detail at the features set before us in this inspired gospel account. I've entitled it simply The Setting. It was Wednesday evening of that Passion Week of our Savior. It was a rather monumental set of events that given night, for as you and I well know, that very next morning He was to be nailed to the cross. It was a rather amazing set of things, truly. Remarkably enough, as we look at the events set before us in Matthew and Mark and Luke and in John, all of them converged to tell us that the events were rapid-paced. One thing after another as the Lord taught, and as He brought before the audience of many other things, He also among those things brought us to this event. The Lord already that day had made some preparation and plans. He had in fact sent Peter and John to make ready for the observance of the Passover that evening as He did that. You and I know well that that immediately brings us to consider a number of other additional features. Ever since the days of Exodus chapter 12, the people of God had celebrated, of course, the Passover. It was always in that right according month of the year. You and I even remember that on the 10th day of the month, they took up a lamb and kept it up until that 14th day of the month. At even, they were to slaughter it, celebrate it maybe with a household next door, but it was to be kept in haste. It was to be prepared and observed very quickly that night. 
Interestingly enough, you notice Jesus celebrated the Passover with His apostles that evening as they were assembled in that upper room. It was, of course, to be the last Passover in the flesh He would keep with them. For again, He was to be killed the next day. As those events rolled before us and them alike that evening, you may notice that the rigidity of that Passover was certainly something that was well understood. It was to be kept the same way every year. There was to be no additions, no subtractions. There were to be no changes or alterations. And yet that night, the Lord did something unusual at the very occasion in which all of that took place. For one thing, we remember He instituted another memorial. It was a memorial that was to last literally until the end of time. A memorial, of course, that you and I still with great pleasure and privilege celebrate even this present day. But you'll notice the other things that the Lord did that evening as well. As you come to about two-thirds of the way down that slide, taking us back to verse number 4, it says, He riseth from supper. On another occasion that evening, Jesus, the antecedent of the pronoun He, He rose from supper, John 13, 4. It says, He laid aside His garments and took a towel and girded Himself. We notice that it was not at all unusual in that day and time for there to be, in addition to one's interior garments, an outer garment that could easily, of course, be laid aside when one was involved in some kind of menial or physical task, for it would, of course, get in the way. Jesus, the text tells us, laid aside that garment. He took a towel, and verse 5 proceeds like this. After that, He poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Jesus proceeded to do what was shocking, what was unexpected. He proceeded to do in the very place of these apostles what they would never have anticipated. Verse 5 says, He poured water into a basin, and with that he began to wash their feet. As he did that in verse number 5, he furthermore wiped those feet that were wet, with a towel wherewith he was girded, the towel he had taken along with him as this procession took place. Verse number 6 then brings us to this interesting observation. As the Lord wiped their feet, He comes to Peter. We don't know the person with whom the Lord started this procession, but He did come to Peter eventually. You'll notice that in verses 6 and 7, a conversation ensues between the Master and Peter. And it says, Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Interesting, isn't it? Peter rather directly, of course, made the statement in a rhetorical question, Do you wash my feet? And you'll notice the Lord's immediate reply, What I do thou knowest not now, but hereafter thou shalt know. Verse number 8, Thou shalt never wash my feet, Peter rather quickly retorted. Jesus answered him, If thou wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only but my hands and my head. As Peter had initially been hesitant, 
we noticed that this brief conversation had now overwhelmed Peter to the point that he not only desired a washing of his feet, but he also made note of both his head and his hands. It is with that in mind you'll notice. We next appreciate that that finality brings us to verse number 10. For Jesus had one final comment to, to these comments Peter had made. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. As you and I pause at the close of verse 15, this episode, this rather intriguing episode of the Lord washing the disciples, the apostles' feet, it does bring us to close that slide and to appreciate the matters that, that are yet for us to consider tonight. For among other things, you and I could ask a host of questions relative to a passage like this one. After all, many throughout the ages have asked such questions. I'll begin the next slide very quickly by asking, probably getting to them a little before you, but asking to set before us some of these thoughts and questions. But as you close that slide, notice the word example our Lord Himself used. Verses 14 and 15, I have given you an example. Here was an actual occurrence in which an example was said, and the Lord asserted that it was to be a teaching example in the sense that you and I ought to learn something rather powerful from it, just like they were to learn something from it. I wonder what it is that we're supposed to learn. What are the main messages to take from this passage and utilize them to assist us in a proper presentation and a proper life before the Lord today? As we transition to the next slide, maybe we can build some of those appreciations like this one. And I'd like to ask this rather interesting question. There are those who assert that this really because of the statements the Lord made is supposed to be a part of worship. And there should be foot washing ceremonies. There ought to be an actual, literal recognition of the washing of each other's feet. Let's read that passage again, verse 15. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Lord, an example of what? Verse 14. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. And therefore, it might be then easy to appreciate the fact, should you and I seriously entertain the regular and the real occurrence in which we wash each other's feet as a part of a worship service? That kind of question could well be answered by many in our world. And in fact, I would ask you to notice there are many who use those two verses you and I read as a firm affirmative, that that is supposed to be a part of worship. The Lord said so, didn't He? Or did He? I've listed for you some exact examples. In fact, you'll notice that the Catholic tradition, of course, places a high correspondence to this. On their Monday Thursday services, there's always a foot washing ceremony. 
In fact, as you and I sometimes observe the events that take place on that Monday Thursday, it is such that the, the Pope himself will allow a foot washing to take place with respect to his feet and often partake of it also with respect to others. But the Catholic tradition is by no means the only one. In fact, I would quickly list for you the free will Baptist tradition is such that, again, they typically place a high priority and a high degree of concern relative to a foot-washing service. Maybe we could even do one better than that. The primitive Baptist movement is such that, again, this is a very cardinal part of that which they teach, the literal exposition of the washing of feet. I say all of that to say you and I will attempt this evening to make a study of this passage and to ask, is that what the Lord intended? If so, you and I clearly have been in the wrong. But if that is not what the Lord intended, then you and I should have an earnest desire to ask, what was the Lord teaching? And what is that example that He set before them that day and one that fr frankly lives powerfully still even today? Let's build that set of considerations like this. First, a careful observation of some of the words utilized in the passage itself. I would call to your attention verse 15. It says, For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Twice in that verse, there is the word ye, the word you. The first thing that you and I might observe immediately is in the ancient Greek passage, in the Greek text that's before us and even highlighted in some translations as you and I look with care at them, is this observation. That pronoun is first person singular. The Lord was not talking to a group of individuals as per se a church. He was talking to individuals, me and you personally. He was not referring in this passage to those matters touching a corporate activity of the church. But not only that, consider this with me. You'll notice that Jesus, very intriguingly, it says in the Greek text, washed both of the feet of each of these disciples. Two feet for each person. Now offhand, that may not seem terribly surprising or shocking, for after all, you and I each, in the normal array of matters, have two feet, do we not? But I would ask you to notice, as you and I watch some of those events, like on Monday, Thursday, or we listen to some of those events as it's described in various religious organizations today, it is almost without fail that that which is done is a symbolic thing. One foot of some person has some water poured over it, and that is recognized as a foot-washing service. That is nothing compared to what the Lord did in John 13. You'll notice, furthermore, that those feet that are typically washed these days, they are well prepared. The person has carefully washed and groomed his feet beforehand so that one doesn't see dirt and one doesn't see impropriety. That had nothing to do with this scene. These men's feet were dirty. In fact, as they gathered in that upper room to celebrate that Passover that evening, notice there were no hosts to wash their feet as they entered the room. Their feet were dirty. They lived in an age and in a time when, of course, they wore sandals, and one typically in dirty, sandy soil has dirty feet when one wears sandals. These disciples had dirty feet, and this was not merly any symbolic set of activities that night. 
I make that statement again for those reasons. The Lord was answering to a need in their life. Their feet were in need of being washed. And as the Lord, in fact, washed their feet, it was a very refreshing, a very comforting, a very moving thing from a number of perspectives. But those two points already have spoken much to you and to me, haven't they? Let's look at yet another one. When you and I recognize a part, an element of the conversation that Peter had with Jesus, it's very telling, isn't it? Let me invite you to look at the language again. Remember, Peter had first said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus basically replied about the interesting feature of verses 7 and 8. What I do now thou knowest not, but hereafter thou shalt know. And following that, Peter then in verse number 8, you'll notice that he said, Not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Isn't it interesting to notice how Jesus replies in verse 10? For notice, Jesus refused to wash his head and his hands. Why? The reason being, again, there was a need with respect to his feet. The feet were dirty. The head and the hands weren't. This was no symbolic set of activities, that which is, again, much what we typically see today in foot washing services. This was the answer of the Son of God to a need in the lives of these apostles, these disciples, these individuals. Those observations prepare us for, for some additional ones as well. Not only might that statement be fair, but consider this one with me too. The whole act of the washing of the feet, this is by no means the first time in Scripture we encounter it. Now, it is true that the other previous descriptions often are much, much briefer, much, much more terse, if you please. I would call to your attention that some of these features are well to be noted. I would ask you to look at that top statement. It is very significant, it seems to me, that two times in this passage, twice, the Lord made the observation, what I do now, you do not know but you will know it hereafter. Now, if it had been the Lord's point, the main lesson to be extracted from this relative to the literal washing of feet, they easily would have known what He meant, for they were watching Him do it. In fact, even Peter clearly knew that He was washing feet because He resisted it. It seems there's a much deeper truth in this than the washing of feet, for Jesus said, What I'm doing now you do not know, but you will know hereafter. That seems alone to be enough to convince us, doesn't it? That there was a far richer, more profound, deeper set of ideas to extract than the mere literal washing of feet. In fact, you'll notice in addition, these disciples, as you'll notice, these disciples with their feet being dirty, in a land and an arena and a position in which that was a typical and common thing for a host or hostess to do in preparation for a guest. That leads us to the comments you'll notice before us on that present slide. I would invite you to develop it like this. As these disciples had their feet washed on that occasion... I believe two slides rolled forward, did it not? That one looks to be the next one.
those comments in light of the washing of the feet on this occasion. I would ask you to put together some of those things we've just commented. First, the Lord said, you, don't, do, you do not understand at this point. Second, he refused to wash the head and hands of Peter. Thirdly, he identified in relation to the events, again, first person, singular in terms of the pronouns used. As you and I pull all that together, we notice there's only one other occasion in all the New Testament when the washing of feet is mentioned. Only one. It occurs in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. It is on that occasion that we find this description, and perhaps you are familiar with it with me. It's a scene in which Paul is making statements relative to the widows indeed there in the vicinity of Ephesus. And as Paul made reference to them, remember, if they met certain criteria, they could be taken into a number, and there the church could provide for them or care for them or ensure that their needs were met. Notice again the word need. And that takes us right back to this scene. The washing of feet, again, was not a mere ceremony. It was not a mere event that was to be taken as something literally to do in a worship service, for example. Rather, all of these come together to help us see that these conclusions seem to obtain. The washing of feet, as you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the washing of feet was an activity designed to set before them the imperative as servants of God to be willing to meet the needs of others, however those needs may present themselves. Sometimes it may be a need relative to something that's not terribly appetizing or not terribly pleasant or not terribly convenient. To wash someone else's feet, if that was the need that needed to be set forth, you and I as individuals should not consider ourselves too good to do it. We shouldn't consider ourselves too high, too lofty, too elevated to even consider assisting someone else in that way if that was the need that needed to be met. You and I could extend that list, though extensively, couldn't we? In fact, as you'll notice at the bottom, any particular act that could well serve then to aid someone else in terms of carrying out the matters of the law of Christ that could feel in easily in place of the washing of feet. What was it the Lord said in Matthew 10? If anybody gives a cup merely of cold water in my name, God says He will look with pleasantness and will look with appropriateness on that which is done. There, would you and I consider it beneath us to give someone water to drink? Would we look upon that as being beneath our dignity? That's the very lesson that this matter in John 13 is intended to do away with. If Jesus could Himself happily, willingly wash the feet of those apostles, He said, this is what I'm teaching you. And do you suppose that they would fully understand that only after the events of the next day? When He Himself would go to a cross, when He Himself, though Lord and Master He was, when He would stoop in humility, to the point of going to the cross, not for his sins, but for all of theirs. And he would submit to a Roman scourging. And he would submit to a Roman crucifixion. And he would submit, of course, to death. No wonder he said, it is finished in John 19.30. 
And no wonder you and I can see in this the tremendous and grand truth of humility as it relates to service in the kingdom of God. As you and I build those thoughts further, it seems we've already answered one of our main questions. It is not a part of worship to wash feet. These today who think that it is have missed the point of John 13. As you and I develop it like this, look at some of these lessons, these observations that might, in addition, be noted. First of all, might I ask you to reflect with me on the state, the mental state of the apostles. How often had we seen it prior to the events of John 13? I would simply bring you to note this. More than once those apostles had fussed and quarreled and argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember, the Lord on one occasion, as they were discussing, it was far distant from Him, so He couldn't literally hear, but He could read their mind. And He thus brought before them Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. There He brought a little child and set it before Him and said, If anyone will be converted and become as this little child, he'll be the greatest in the kingdom. But He went on to say, Unless you're willing to be converted and become as this little child, then you'll notice as he taught about humility and as he taught about the recognition of putting away one's errors and arrogances, the Lord taught very explicitly, did he not, about the nature of humble service in the kingdom. There was another occasion in Mark chapter 10 when they again were fussing about who'd be the greatest in the kingdom. That partly was prompted by James and John, remember, who their mother came and said, I want my sons to sit on your right hand and on your left in the kingdom. Jesus said, what you've asked is not mine to give. The Lord pointed out to them that, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Those apostles, the others, became a bit jealous and angry of Peter and John for asking for such a position of elevation. But you'll notice that the Lord used that in verse number 45 of that chapter to teach. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give His life a ransom for many. The Lord came to serve, and He's taught you and me to do the same, didn't He? There shouldn't be anything then that's beneath your dignity and mine to assist another in terms of needfulness in the terms of the kingdom. If it's washing their feet, cleaning their gutters, sweeping their back porch, you and I as Christians should happily be willing to do it. The Lord taught us that very message, did He not, in relation to the washing of feet. As you come next, you'll notice, you and I recollect something about the Good Samaritan of Luke chapter 10. There was a scene, wasn't it, where a man found himself in a very dire predicament. He'd been beaten and robbed and left for half dead. A couple of religious people passed by on the other side and didn't do anything but look at him. One of them was a priest. One of them was a Levite. But thankfully, thankfully, a Samaritan came by. One would have thought that the Samaritan would be the least likely to help. And yet, he poured in ointment and poured in various helpful matters in terms of the man's wounds, took him to an end by, by appropriate measure, paid for him to stay. We noticed the Good Samaritan was the very one who was a neighbor to that man. Wasn't that the point the Lord asked? Who was neighbor to the wounded man? 
And that lawyer responded by saying, the one that showed mercy. And then Jesus closed it in verse 37 by saying, Go and do thou likewise. Whether it be the washing of feet, notice the example that as you've seen me, you should be willing to do it too. You'll notice perhaps finally, a plethora of passages that speak to, to the occurrence and the reality of humility. We do live in an age and a time when humility sometimes is difficult to appreciate, isn't it? Each one wants his rights. I demand my rights, sometimes we hear them say on the news or at least other avenues of media. And there are others who are so quick to say, I will not be treated this way. I'm, that's beneath me. And hence, they refuse certain activities or they consider other things inappropriately beneath their education and their position, their schooling, if you will. But here was the Son of God, the very Son of God, by far the greatest to ever walk this planet. And yet, He was happily willing to wash their feet because they needed it. It was not a show by any stretch of the imagination. Nothing like those things we often see today when Maundy Thursday rolls around and there's this spectacle with cameras around. This was not a show. The Lord, as He taught the events surrounding the washing of feet, the mentality that should be yours and mine in the kingdom to be willing to help, to meet the needs of others. No wonder some of these verses come before us. James chapter 4, verse 10, where we're reminded about the needfulness of how God looks upon humility. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. So when you and I are willing in condescending character to come before another and offer assistance and helpfulness, God says, when I observe that humility, I will lift you up. Or as you and I notice in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, a little bit later further in the New Testament, even Peter makes note again about the impressiveness of humility. Isn't it a bit interesting to notice that the very one who wrote the book of 1 Peter is the very one here in John 13 who initially resisted and the very one who ultimately begged the Lord, not only my feet but my hands and my head as well, to meet the needs then of a situation like that one. Look at Colossians 3 verse 12. You and I notice on an occasion like that one that here among one of those famous lists that Paul puts before us, he commands you and I to adopt and to utilize humbleness of mind. When you and I give thought to those Christian graces of 2 Peter 1 or those works that you and I notice in Galatians chapter 5, those commended works, notice, this list has in it humbleness of mind. Paul states it on that occasion as a straightforward requirement. No arrogance apparently will enter heaven. If you and I think that we're too good for certain things or we're unwilling for certain matters or helpfulness, we must be mighty cautious and mighty careful. For we notice their humility of mind is then characteristic of the Lord Himself. Let's revisit that scene in Philippians 2 for just a moment. Beginning in verse number 5 of that chapter, that amazing hymn, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If the mind of Christ led him, 
in humility and in humbleness to set aside all pretension and all errors and to simply wash their feet. Shouldn't you and I be willing to serve in the kingdom humbly, willingly, cherishing every opportunity that He gives us to serve? That text does go on in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation. Our day and time is one of noted reputation, isn't it? We want reputation, and quite often the world encourages it, it demands it. If you're anybody, you'll do this, that, or another. You'll drive this car. You'll have this kind of other clothing that you'll wear. And there ain't anything wrong with clothing and cars and houses. But if we allow ourselves to be exalted to the point where we are unwilling to humbly serve in the kingdom because we're too good for certain things, we're treading very dangerous territory. The washing of feet is a time-tested example that forever reminds us of those events, doesn't it? You might notice this. Christ's example and the happiness that it teaches there from that passage of Philippians 2 prepares us for that one last thought. It seems as though we certainly cannot miss one other feature. The washing of their feet, we've learned already tonight that it was a monumental example of humility a monumental example of being willing to serve to the needs of another, whatever those needs would or might be. But Jesus did make one little statement, didn't He? There in verses 10 and 11. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is it clean every whit? And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. You and I can easily see that this word washing is utilized with respect, of course, to cleanliness and used with respect to appropriateness in regard to service. In John 15, 3, Jesus said, speaking there of cleanliness, ye are clean through the word that I have spoken. You and I are made clean by appropriate usage of the word, being washed by it, being washed with it, if you please. No wonder in light of all those things. That closing thought on that slide taken from John 15 verse number 3. Being washed, of course, by Christ Himself. What about some thoughts of conclusion? Summary statements, if you will, about this evening's consideration of John chapter 13. First of all, we have learned very easily that the setting was certainly that very great night that night in which our Savior made some final preparations for His death the next day. But among those preparations was an unforgettable teaching of humility. If you gentlemen recognize me as Lord and Master, and I'm willing to wash your feet, then in light of what you're about to see me do tomorrow, in light of the great sacrifice that I make for you, you be willing to love each other and serve each other in the kingdom and you meet each other's needs, and you be there to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice, to borrow the words of Romans 12, 15. You furthermore bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, to borrow the language of Galatians 6, verse 2. As you and I look at all that, we've learned this was no part of a worship service, never was it intended to be. It was a lesson, again, about humility. 
No arrogance or errors of any kind. No reputation involved in this. Finally, we've seen it was a lesson encouraging them to be mere humble servants in the kingdom. I hope we've each been reminded about the blessing that's ours to serve as a Christian. The happiness that comes with that is highlighted in 1 Peter 4.16, isn't it? But if any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. To glorify God in the greatest of all names. As we come next Lord's Day, if it be the blessing of God, we will come to some of the final chapters in John. And as we do that, we'll see the embodiment of the humility we've seen tonight as the Lord trudges ever so strongly with great presentation toward Calvary. Tonight it might be that there is someone in the audience who has allowed the devil too much play, if you please, in your life. He's brought you to recognize, or so you think, a highness and a haughtiness that's not good. And others around you maybe see that and they recognize that has no place in right service to the Lord. If we could pray for your strength and your forgiveness and your encouragement tonight to return to a proper and right mentality of service to the Master, we'd be delighted to help you and to assist you. If though you are an alien sinner, one who at this point has never bowed the knee to Christ, why not do that tonight? The plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, you repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and then simply, humbly, and with great desire be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. If we could help you in that way tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. This hymn of encouragement has been selected, and now is a convenient time. If you'd like to come, why not now? All together we stand and sing. <laughs>